Well, we're going to continue in Mark. Are you guys ready? Let's try this again. We're going to continue in Mark. Are you all ready? Open your Bibles. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. You say, wait, aren't we in chapter 6? Yes, we are. Get to 8, and once you get there, I want you to put a finger, a bookmark, a piece of paper, something. Just get there and mark it. Mark, mark. And then flip back a page to chapter 6. We're going to look at two different stories that are so very similar, we sometimes miss their unique differences. But as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question and maybe consider with me this, this thought. Have you ever had a moment where your inadequacies became overwhelming? Have you ever had a moment where your inadequacies, an an area where you just are not as strong, or you thought you were, but you came to a point where your ability was far short of the issue at hand? Have you ever come to a place where your inadequacies became overwhelming? Um, I've had many of those moments, many of them right up here on Sundays. You don't know it, I just cry later. It's a wonderful thing. But one of those moments happened eight years ago actually eight and a half, nine years ago when my wife said, hey, honey, uh, we're, we're going to have a baby. And, and she's always sweet to say we, even though we all know men that we don't have the babies, but we get like credit for it somehow. I helped. I mean, not really, but so they're going to have a baby. My wife says, we're going to have a baby. And I'm like, oh no, I don't know what to do. And I remember that moment thinking, you know, all I really wanted was to be a dad and how exciting it's going to be to be a dad and I'm ready and all this. And then I begin to think through what that really means. How many of you know that parenthood looks far more glamorous from the outside than the inside of parenting? There are a lot of things that go into being a parent. And and as we began to get ready for it and we began to buy the things and people began to give us gifts or they began to just give us, uh, you know, words of wisdom or encouragement, uh, there'd be guys, I'd be passing the hall in the church in Nashville where I served at the time and they just walk by and they just go, good luck. And they just keep going. It's like, well, God bless you too. And so there was this sense of, oh no, what will I do? And I remember the day came, our son was born. And it's the most exciting feeling when you, when you see that little person. And I remember, I still have a picture in the room where they put them on a little tray table and they have them under like that heating lamp. It looks like one of those hot lamps that you see at like a Luby's or some sort of cafeteria to keep the food warm. You know, so he stuck them under one of those lamps. They, they, they've taken all of his vitals and I, and I said his name. And because I was one of those dads who would get next to my wife's tummy and I would talk to my son, uh, like when I then spoke his name, he turned his head when I, when I saw him for the first time. But I said, Stephen, he turned. And it was like, wow, this is awesome. And then he grinned at me. And I'm like, he, he grinned. And the nurse said, it's just gas. And, and I thought, oh, well, okay, that's all right. And I remember the first night in the hospital room. And, and we're so excited. And then we try to go to sleep. And, and I try to give him back to the nurses. And they say, oh, no, he's yours now. <laughs> I was like, well, where's the user manual? And they said, they don't come with one. I said, well, that is not a good plan for anyone. And we get them home, and as so many of you know, there's so many stories and events, things that just don't go the way you think they should, sleepless nights, frustrating moments, uh, times where you really are wondering if there's a warranty, and can you get your money back, and, and how do you do this? And, but I remember not too long after he was born, Lindsay uh, was planning to go to a women's retreat, and she really, really, really had, had debated about going. And I remember 
encouraging her, saying, oh, baby, I got this. Man, man, how many times do we, I mean, just show of hands, how many of us have ever said something to our wives like, hey, baby, I've got this, and our vibrato or bravado was a lot greater than our ability? Any guy out there where your ability is far less than what you say it is? Oh, baby, I got this. This can be great. And, and, and Lindsay's like, no, I can stay home. And I was like, no, no, you really need to go. And she's like, no, but you might kill him by accident. And I'm like, probably not. And, you know, and so I convinced her to go. And I remember my dad came over. It was a Friday afternoon, and we're going to have some man time because how many of us know that at least most of us, it takes at least two men to equal maybe one mom? It's, it's, it's debatable, maybe three or four, but we'll say two. And so dad came over to hang out. And I remember we were hanging out. Lindsay is in the car. She leaves. She is 30 minutes away. And, and Dad and I decided to step out on the front of the house. And so we come out and pull the door behind us. We're talking there for a moment. When I realized that my son has used the bathroom. And, and this is, first off, it's a hazmat issue. I mean, it's just a hazard. You know, you're like, okay, we've got to deal with this. And so I turn around to go back inside. And the door's locked. I did not bring a key. And being the planner that I am, I don't even have a key hidden in like one of those fake rocks outside. There is nothing. I have not given a key to a neighbor or friends. Even my dad, who lived in the same town, did not have a key. And I'm going, oh no. What what do I do? And I start to go through the Rolodex of options of, well, I could do this or I could do this. I could break a window. Um, I could abandon my son. I could, I mean, there, there's some options here because there was one option I did not want to take. And you all know the option that I did not want to take. Hey, sweetheart. But after about 30 minutes of trying to figure it out, I finally get the guts up to do the, hey, sweetheart. I call her. She's out of town. And... and And I remember, I don't remember the words, I just remember the tone. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself in a place where your inadequacies became overwhelming? See, we have a God-given vision as a church. And if you're new here, let me just tell you what it is. Our vision is that we would be a reproducing, multiplying church, meaning... That we would not simply stay in this room as we are, but God, by his power and grace, would multiply us as individuals. That the good news of Jesus would be disseminated from us to others. And that there would be more people in more places who would know more about Jesus. That his kingdom would come, his will would be done in Chattanooga as it is in heaven. But there are times where our inadequacies, when you see how big that is, you go, we we don't have the ability to do this. Maybe it's not... um, for you, maybe it's not a big vision like the city. Maybe you're going, man, Josh, I just, I'm trying to just get through life with my, my marriage intact. Man, man, when I think about the difficulties of married life, I, I don't know how to do that. And my inadequacies become overwhelming. I mean, boy, it's not men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It's like, I don't even know where we're from. We're just completely different. Or maybe it's a new job for you and you're going, I'm just trying to get through this and figure out how to start it up or how to get into it, how to be an influencer where I'm at. Maybe it's you're a parent and you're going, I just need to know how to raise this child to know and love Jesus. And for others in here, you're thinking your inadequacies, you're thinking about your neighbors and your neighborhood or your children's school or your place of work and you're going, I can't do it. This is exactly where the apostles and the disciples find themselves. 
Throughout the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that Jesus takes his followers intentionally into places that are beyond their abilities. He'll take them to a demon-possessed man, into the middle of a stormy sea, into illnesses and sicknesses in confrontation with people who are much smarter than they are. And so finally, we get to a point here in chapter 6 and again in chapter 8 where Jesus Christ intentionally takes them to a spot and he puts them into a place that is bigger than their abilities. And here's what's so interesting. When they face the problem, Jesus does not do something that I would have expected him to do. He doesn't give them a pep talk. When they find that they are unable to do what he has called them to do, he doesn't say, you can do it. Believe in you. Here's what you do. Just just believe that you can fly. You, You can do it. He doesn't do any of that stuff. Because he knows the only thing that can overcome your inadequacies is not a bigger vision of you, but a bigger vision of him. And so that's where we come in Mark chapter 6. Grab your Bibles. I want to read to you a very familiar story. Mark chapter 6, beginning in 32, says this. So they, this is Jesus and his apostles and his disciples. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So what happened is Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee and he is circling around the western side. And he's going from one town to another. So he's not pushed very far out from the water. They're just kind of coasting along the edge and people can see the boat and they begin to run ahead to where he is going to be. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wage. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate, and let's say this together, And they were satisfied. And then he goes on, he says, And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now, here's the problem with this passage. You and I have heard this way too many times. You remember, and I remember the flannel board growing up in church. By the way, how many of you still can visualize the flannel board growing up at church? You've got the flannel board. You've got Jesus, who is always a white guy, which never made sense to me because he's, he's not from here. But you have Jesus. He's wearing a beautiful white gown and a red sash. He's ready for Miss America. He is all in. You then have the apostles and the disciples, and you have people on the hillside. You know the scene, right? 
And the problem is our familiarity often keeps us from seeing the profundity of this story. So I just want to walk you through it real briefly here this morning. But here's sort of the three movements that we see. If you kind of want to get a sense, a scope of this moment, there are three sections. The first is that Jesus sees the need. Then he says, you feed the need. And then Jesus exceeds the need. So it starts with Jesus saying, you, he sees the need. He says, now you feed the need. And then he exceeds the need. So let's just kind of walk through this because this is one of those stories that's so important. You say, why do we know that it's important? Because other than for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this story. In fact, because this one is so famous and so familiar, we often forget and even ignore that there's another feeding story just two chapters later. So in chapter 8, Jesus does a similar miracle, but not with 5,000, but how many? Do you guys already know? 4,000. So what I want to do is I just kind of want to walk us through this because there are some similarities, but there's some differences. By the way, just for those of you who may be skeptical about scripture, uh, there are those who say that scholars or rather the scribes got it wrong, that there was really just one feeding story, but they by accident repeated themselves later. Here's the problem with that. Jesus is going to say later in Mark, he is going to refer both to the feeding of the five and the feeding of the four in the same verses. He's going to say, hey, You remember when I fed 5,000? You remember when I fed 4,000? So he's going to say both of these things did happen. But because they're so similar, we sometimes miss it. So I just want to show you some of the differences. When we think about Jesus seeing the need, let's just kind of start here. Very first difference. What do you see, church? How many of you can count? What, What do you see as the difference, church? You got 5,000, you got 4,000. There's a numbers difference, right? But the numbers are not the only difference. In fact, let me just sort of show you. We'll pull up our map. This is also on page five of your journal. But you have in Mark chapter six, Jesus is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee in a place called Galilee. This was predominantly a Jewish portion of the world. This is where the Hebrew people lived. And so the first story takes place on the west side with Hebrew people, with Jewish people. So these would be the churched folk, the people that the disciples and apostles knew from growing up. But on the east side, on chap- in chapter 8, they're in a place called the Decapolis. Decapolis simply means the ten cities. It was a collection of Gentile nations. And on that side, Jesus performs a miracle for Gentiles. But it goes beyond this. Notice Not only is it for the Jews and Gentiles, but when he feeds the 5,000, they're with Jesus for one day. When he feeds the 4,000, they're with him for three days. Now you say, what's the big deal about this? Well, here's what's so interesting. The disciples don't see what Jesus sees. Can we just admit that sometimes we have spiritual blind spots? Um, I think about this often where there are things that I read in Scripture and I don't see for years and years and years. Or I'll be with some of you and you'll see something so clearly and I'll be like, wow, I've never seen that before. The disciples missed some obvious things. So when Jesus says that he has compassion in Mark 6, the way he demonstrates compassion is he begins to teach them the word of God. Understand that compassion leads us to giving them eternal food, not just temporal food. 
The disciples don't see that. And then later in that day, the disciples, they, they say, Jesus, you know, everyone's kind of getting hungry. It's been a great series of sermons that you did like in one day. So instead of like 30 minutes or 45 minutes, this has been eight hours. Great teaching. Love it. But hey, everyone's kind of hungry. They see the need of the people quickly when it is their people. What's interesting is when you get to Mark 8, though, Jesus is teaching, and there's this crowd of people who are following him, not for one day, not for two, but for three days, and the disciples never think about the hunger of the people. It is Jesus in Mark 8, if you want to look this up later, it's in Mark 8 where Jesus says, these people are hungry. And isn't it interesting that the first thing that happens is Jesus sees needs often more quickly than I do. And sometimes the reason I will see a need is because I am more closely associated with a person than another group. And yet Jesus sees needs regardless of location or who they are, what's going on. He sees the need and then notice what happens next here. Although these are differences, one similarity is in both places we're told that Jesus has compassion on them. Now, this is a great little Greek word. Are you ready for a Greek lesson this morning? The word here, and we've talked about this before, but let's just kind of get a refresher here. The Greek word for compassion is... Splagtonizomai. Let's try this together. Splagtonizomai. You ready? Splagnotizomai. No? Yeah? Don't feel bad if you can't say it. You don't need to know how to say it to know what it means. Here it is. Are you ready? It means a deep feeling in your bowels. You say, what? In the ancient world, the belief was the seat of your emotions. The deepest place you feel is not in your heart, but in the pit of your stomach. Think about it with me for a moment. Some of you, when you think of things that make you incredibly nervous. Some of you getting up in front of people, that is just, oh man, the thought of that makes you feel queasy in your what? In your stomach. Some of you, it's not that. Maybe it's, uh, guys, you remember the time when you asked that girl out and you were so nervous and your stomach just kind of going all over the place? So there's this belief that your emotions were here in the pit of your stomach. It's the equivalent to our heart today where we might say, I feel something deeply in my heart. But they would say, I feel it deeply in my gut or in my bowels. And so they might say, this situation has moved my bowels. That means something incredibly different today. So we don't say that. But the big idea is this, this word compassion, if you want a real easy American equivalent, here is what it means, to suffer with. Jesus says, I suffer with them. He does not say I sympathize with them, like man, I I sort of have emotion for them. He doesn't even say, I empathize with them, meaning, well, I once was hungry, so I know how they feel. Rather, he says, I am in it with them. I am suffering with them. Understand, Jesus never does ministry at arm's length. He always gets in the middle, in the mess, in the moment. Ours is a God who sees, not simply with eyes, but with his whole life, what people are going through. And I think one of the things you need to know is when you are facing a moment where you're going, I don't know how to do what God has called me to do. He has compassion on 
you. The second thing that happens here, he then goes on to say, well, you feed them. You feed them. Can you imagine a more terrifying moment as the disciples? I mean, how many of you would think, man, I'd rather be back in the boat in the middle of the lake in that horrible, horrible, horrible just storm on the sea than in this moment because Jesus says, oh, there's so many people. You're right, they are hungry. You feed them. And and I love this. They begin to quickly sort of do a head count. Well, there's how many people? There's five. Well, there's 5,000 men, but that's households. Well, if we add in the women and the children, that's 15, no, 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 20,000, wait, 25,000 people. And they say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, this would take eight months wages. This would take a ton of money. We don't have that kind of money. They say it is impossible. And Jesus, I love our Savior. It is as though he looks at them and when they hit that moment where they say, we can't, he goes, exactly. Let me just submit to you that if you've never been to a point where you say, I can't, you have yet to get to the point to see what God can They say, we can't do this. It's too big. I love what one person said. He said, when God wants to do something good, he starts with a difficulty. When he wants to do something great, however, God starts with an impossibility. Have you ever been in that moment where your inadequacies were overwhelming because you look and you say, my kids, I do everything I know how to, but I cannot seem to share with them the gospel in a way that grabs hold Or you look at your spouse and you go, we made promises, but I don't know how to relight the fire that was once there. Or you look at your neighborhood and you go, it is such a dark place that needs Jesus. Or your school or your work and you go, I don't know how to do what I've been called to do. Never mind the fact that we've been called to this great city of Chattanooga. And you go, how do we do this? Jesus, we can't. And Jesus says, now you got it. You can't. But he doesn't leave them with you can't. Notice what he says. He asks them a very important question. He asks them, what do you have? What what, what do you have? And you can almost imagine they begin to search and they begin to look in people's pockets and they begin to ask, hey, do you have any food? Do you have any food? And in other gospels, we're told that they found a little boy who had brought just this little bitty lunch sack full of fish and crackers, basically, little sardines and little biscuits. And they come to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus, we have five biscuits and two little bitty pickled fish. And can you imagine how unbelievably just, I mean, just depressing this moment must have been for them. They search through the crowds and all they find are a couple crackers and fish. It's like, here. Or you go to the one in chapter 8 where they're with a Gentile nation and they find seven biscuits and a few fish. And then even worse than this, think about this for a moment. If you find this many and they've been outside with Jesus for three days, how fresh are those biscuits? And they've been sitting in someone's pocket for a few days. Mmm. What about those fish? How fresh are fish that have been in the desert for three days? How many of you would just go, no thanks? In fact, I've often wondered, how did they find those fish? Probably by the smell, right? How disappointing and depressing where you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, this is all I have. 
Have you ever found yourself when, when you look at what resources you do have and ability and, and you count it before the Lord, man, this is the time I have, it's not much. This is the financial resources I have, it's not much. This is my skill set. It's not much. These are my, my, my spheres of influence. Man, they're small. I don't know many people. Or these are my doors of opportunity. There's just not very many. And you look at it and you go, God, I can't, I can't, I can't. What do I do? And he goes, give me what you've got. And do you notice something really important here? Notice this, look. In one account... You have five loaves, two fish. Another one, it's seven loaves and a few fish. Notice that the numbers are different. Resources are different. How many of us often wait to ask God for help? How many of us wait to then walk in obedience with what we have? How many of us do not intentionally move forward, open hands with God because we look at the resources of another person, another group, or another time, and we compare what we have today to yesterday and say, it can't be done. I know yesterday you were faithful. I know over here you're faithful. But I have different resources. I can't do it. Do you notice the resources are different, but God uses the resources perfectly. The question is not, what, do you have resources? The question is, are you giving your resources to Jesus? Here's the reality. When you come up in a moment where your inadequacies are overwhelming, it is not a question of, do you have resources? It's a question of, have you given them to Jesus Christ? I think about so many of you who, man, you tirelessly give of your time, your talents, your treasures, and your work, and you have been all in with God, and even though you are low man on the totem pole, you have seen God begin to bring your friends to faith. You've begun to see the culture of that workplace change, because as you have simply said, here's what I have, a few little crackers and some stinky fish, God says, I can use whatever you give me. In fact, God will never ask you to give him something that you don't already have. And God will multiply what you have for the purposes that he has called you. So last thing, as we're kind of walking through this, what do you have? And I just would like to invite you as we kind of get close to coming to a close here, I want you to consider for a moment, what do you have this morning? What is, what is in your hands? You might want to just make a mental inventory of the things that God has given you. And then the next question is not just the inventory. Maybe, maybe you say, I have this much time. I have this much money. I have this much influence. I have this much skill set in these areas. Maybe then the next question is at each one to say, have I given this to Jesus? Have I given this to Jesus? Have I given this to Jesus? Because our open hands leads to God filling hungry hearts. Notice the last thing I think is so beautiful here. At the end, he takes it. He breaks it. He thanks God for it. And he gives it out. And it begins to multiply. Here's the reason I don't give. Maybe you're different. The reason I don't often give of my time, my talents, or my treasures is my fear is that if I give it to God, I will lose out. But do you notice at the end of the story, they come back, they don't just have people fed, but they end up with 12 basketfuls at the end. This little Greek word here refers to a tiny little lunchbox or sack of food. The idea is that the 12 apostles who had no food to begin with, leave satisfied and with a doggy bag. The gifts of God. 
And then over here, you have seven basketfuls. The word there is not little doggy bag, but rather it's the idea of a bushel or a barrel, a big wicker basket. Now, here's what's so cool. These numbers are legitimate and true, but they are also symbolic here on the side with Israel and with people of God. It just so happens that God has enough that there are 12 leftovers. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles that represent the church. You have a picture of God's perfect provision for all of his people. There is enough. And then you come over here to this side with the Gentiles and the rest of the world. And the number seven is a picture of perfection, of completion. There are seven days in the week. God rested on the seventh day because his work was done. And on the side of the rest of the world, he says, I have enough to complete my mission for the world church. Any mission you find yourself in, if it is God's mission, it is inside of this larger one. Meaning God's provision is enough for you. And when you find yourself overwhelmed by your inadequacies, it's not about you trying harder. It's not about you figuring out ways to manipulate the situational maneuver. It is about saying, here's what I have. My loaves of bread, my little fish. Here it is, Jesus. Here it is. Jesus. 